So I warned you last week there'd be a bit of a slowdown. That was because there was just enough going on here in Romans 10 with a break in thought that we could divide it and be able to cover it slowly. And I'm warning you now that's going away next week. So when you come next week, be ready to go because we're doing all of chapter 11, just going to hit the ground running. And that's because there's not really a break in thought. And it just, I'm, I'm, I'm weird. So when I go to the gym in the mornings, I actually listen to sermons that people have preached you know, years and years ago. So I'm, I went through the Gospel of Matthew in the last couple of um, months. And the reason I joke, I say months is because the guy I'm listening to took like four years to get through the Gospel of Matthew. And just for fun, I'm listening to now through Romans because by the time I get done with Romans, we'll be four books from now and he'll still be going because I think it took him six years to get through Romans. Like it was, it was three sermons on Romans 1, 1. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's now granted, I enjoy some of that because of the history and the breakdown. But when it comes to teaching through it myself, I can't do that to you guys because units of thought are important, and I think we miss the forest for the trees. Like if you want to get a Bible degree or you want to really pick apart the nuts and bolts of it, there's a time and a place for that. But most Sunday mornings, not the time and the place. I think you miss something on that. Worst case scenario gives me an excuse. If we cover all the books, we'll just go back and do Romans again and pick stuff we miss. Sound good? So as we go through this, remember. I know I've reminded you reminded you of this a bunch. I'm going to continue to beat this horse. I don't care how long it's been dead. You cannot understand Romans if you forget everything that's come before it. And 9, 10, and 11 specifically, you have to keep them in mind, and you have to see them in light of the first eight chapters. So what have we learned in 9 and 10 thus far? Well, God is sovereign, even in salvation, and the proof of God's changing the heart for salvation is in the response of faith. So that's the beginning parts of chapter 10. Now, if you have seen that in verses 1 through 13, you should be asking a question about something that's not in verses 1 through 13. And that would be why verses 14 through 21 are there and what we get to look at this morning. So, lest you veer too far, remember the rules, especially on a day like today. What are the rules for driving? We got a ditch over here and a ditch over there. Where do we want to be? Yeah, the, the ditches that end up, the reason why Romans 9 is there is because there's one ditch that says, no, people are in charge of everything and that God is just dealing with people and what decisions they make. No, that's a ditch. We don't want to land in there. But after you read 9 and then you see verse 10, there's another ditch on the other side of the road that says, well, God rules and reigns and runs everything, so therefore what should I do? Nothing. I don't have to do anything. I have no responsibility. I have not, there's nothing I need to worry about because God's in charge of everything. Well, no, you have just careened off into the ditch and something bad has happened. So lest you veer too far in that direction, Paul answers that in this section. In light of who God is and what he is doing, what is your responsibility? And what does that mean for who we have thought of as the people of God in the Old Testament and even moving forward into our day? Sound good? That's this section. Let's have fun. If I can get my pages pulled apart. I have all my fingers again, although this one's still weird feeling from where I burned it. So <laughs> the joy of having burned it now is that it's just been cold enough now that it keeps drying out on me. So every time I feel like, oh, good, it's going to heal and it's going to be fine. The skin dries and cracks and then it gets to reheal again. So, yeah, I'm just going to apparently have damaged this finger for the rest of the winter. So I've just come to grips with that and just going to have to be okay. But I can turn pages and yay, that seems like such a victory. So verse 14, let's dive in. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So this is a good way to summarize these questions would be, duh. I mean, Paul's kind of giving you the obvious questions, but he's asking the right questions. How can ethnic Israel, because that's what he's talking about in chapter, from the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, how can ethnic Israel actually believe in God? What must happen? They've got to hear the truth, which means someone must proclaim the truth so that they can believe in God. This is one of those obvious things, right? In order for you to hear and believe something, what must happen? This is why uh, one of my favorite quotes that's, okay, just in case you still believe, I've mentioned this before, but it's been a really long time. There's a great false quote attributed to church history, and we always attribute it to Francis of Assisi. And just so you know, if we could bring him up from the dead and you attributed this quote to him, he would slap you. Just, just in case you're ever wondering, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. It's one of those coffee cup sayings that drives me insane, and if Francis of Assisi knew you were giving him credit for that, he would hit you with your coffee mug, just so you know. By definition, preaching the gospel requires what? 
words. I've told you this before. No one, you have never once been in the checkout line at Walmart with someone being a rude jerk in front of you and you handled it with grace because you're supposed to, because you're loving God and loving your neighbor. And after you've handled it with grace and the jerk has left, the person behind you in line has gone, tell me about your savior. Like that's never happened. Not once. They've looked at you and gone, you did a good job with that. Or actually they probably just went, because they don't want to talk to you unless you're me, because then everybody wants to talk to you if you're me. I don't know why. I have a sign somewhere that I haven't found. You guys laugh every time I tell you this. Cameron will vouch. I have, I have, I don't try to ask. You know that thing where people go, you go, hey, how are you? And you go, oh, hey, how are you? And you say, I'm fine. How are you? And that's like the end of the conversation. I don't do that at grocery stores because I have had checkout people tell me how they are. Like whole life story, who's in the hospital, who died, like what kid is addicted to drugs. I'm just standing there going, what just happened here? <laughs> I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? I don't know what it is. Like the antisocial of the two of us, they don't talk to Cameron. They talk. It's like cats. You're like cats because they're antisocial creatures. They go to the person who won't look at them because they think that means an invitation. I think that's what it is at Walmart. That's why I try not to go if I don't have to. <laughs> it's my theory. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. But you have never once shown the love of God and had someone go, tell me about Jesus, because that's not a thought process. In order for them to know the why of what you're doing, what must happen? You have to explain it. You have to be communicating. The preaching of the gospel by definition requires words, which by the way, has always been the case. And it has always been why God has had witnesses and a testimony. So if you rewind back, this is something we've done on Wednesday. So we'll go all the way back farther than I even did on my notes. Adam and Eve are in the garden, right? Do you have to do any work in the garden? No, 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 not the garden, not Eden. Because what's happening? You got the trees and the fruit and everything, and what are they doing? They're just producing. You just got to take care of it. But what are Adam and Eve supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so they can do what to the ends of the earth? Cultivate it. Take the garden to the ends of the earth. Now, how, are, how well are Adam and Eve going to be at that? I mean, even if you have bunches of kids, can you handle that work? No, so as you send out those bunches of kids you're supposed to have, what are you supposed to do with them? You're supposed to train them on how, since you cannot carry the dominion of God to the ends of the earth, the people that you are creating and the people that they are creating are going to have to do that, which means you're going to have to do what with them? Actually tell them something. Explain Teach them. This is what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. This is where the failure comes in with Cain. This is what Seth does with his family line. That's how you get from Seth to Noah in Genesis 5. This is what fails with Noah coming off the boat. This is what Abraham's, Abraham is supposed to do. This is why Noah was a preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter. This is, by the way, what Israel was supposed to do. So if you go back, um, Exodus 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now stop. Why are they supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Well, what are they supposed to be doing there? Just sitting there going, nah, 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 we're the holy nation and you're not. <laughs> is that how that's supposed to go? No. Don't, don't give me that look, woman. <laughs> My wife's allowed, so it's okay. Why are they there? So that that mixed multitude that goes out of Egypt, when God plants them, at, as they are at the crossroads of the entirety of the known world, who will see their blessings? Everyone. They will look at themselves and go, this tiny little nation, these no good people, look at all that they have. Look how secure they are. Look how... What are you, what have you got that we don't? Now, let me tell you about our God. They're the testimony to his gracious work, to his goodness, to his mercy, to what he did to the Egyptians as they rebelled against him, to what he does against all sin, to what he is doing in redeeming a people. This is the entirety of the Old Testament, is God rescuing and redeeming a people to then testify to his goodness and mercy. Christian, you stand in the fulfillment of that. This is, again, that part of loving God and loving neighbor. We talked about this last week. The places that you have influence, the places that you have the dominion that you ex extend, as, as you're extending the dominion of God, you're to do it how? Glorifying him, pointing to his great salvific work, and extending that by making disciples. Who's your first disciple? Who is it? Who's your first disciple? Come on. You, you are, starting with you. That's your first dominion. Now, 
That has been conquered. Congratulations. Yes, it's a work in progress. Yes, you're going to keep doing that. But now what? You got a spouse. You got a roommate. You got family. You got friends. You got neighbors. You got that crazy person at Walmart you talk to. Or if you're like Clark, it's all the people at Meyer that you talk to. <laughs> Which, that's a good thing. This is how you do this. As you go out into the world, as you live, you are the people of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. To do what? To fulfill this. They can't. God's salvific work extends to the ends of the earth as the gospel extends to the ends of the earth. That gospel is not because God wrote, you know, God hired a skywriter. It's not, it's not like the blue angels are up there doing cloud formations. Like, oh, believe in Jesus. What's happening? His people are doing this work because this is how God is operating in the world. That's not changed just simply because Israel exists. So you go to verse 15. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. Um, several Bible translations do this, not all of them. So if yours doesn't, don't feel bad. It doesn't make you a bad person. You just have to figure it out a different way. But you'll notice here in the NASB, anytime you see that all caps, this is not like your text message from your teenagers. The Bible is not yelling at you. This is because <laughs> it's a day, I'm telling you. There's not, enough air, there's not enough oxygen. I'm lightheaded. What can I say? All caps means we're quoting the Old Testament. So Paul is quoting here from Isaiah. Where in Isaiah? Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, this is fun because... Isaiah is a prophecy that is not written just in like little verses here and there. It's not like Proverbs where sometimes verse 13 has nothing to do with verse 14 and vice versa. There's a flow to the conversation. There's a flow to the message that Isaiah is given. And while Paul quotes from verse 7, it does continue on. Let's see where. Listen. You watchmen, lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, pause for a second. Isaiah 52, that whole little section about the watchman ends there at verse 12. Isaiah 52, 13 begins another section. Now, don't look, don't look, no cheating. Bible trivia time. Isaiah 52.13 begins Isaiah's exposition about which person? Hmm? Yeah, the suffering servant. It goes from the ending of Isaiah chapter 52 into the one you should know, which is Isaiah chapter 53. The suffering servant that has gone out, which means the good news. Why are the feet beautiful? What are they testifying to? Yeah, the work that the Messiah will accomplish, the salvation. Now, notice the watchman. Who is that message for? So it's in your, if it's in your bulletins, you can go check me on it later. But that message is supposed to go out to the nations in fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that Abraham will be a great nation and that nation will be a blessing upon all the nations. That the work of the garden, the failed dominion that is, it was, as it was supposed to be extended out from Eden to the ends of the earth, will be accomplished as who accomplishes it? God. Where people have failed, God will step in and succeed. The Messiah will accomplish. He will build this up. Now, Paul, recognizing that, builds on that and keeps going. So, verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So we have to pause because that's something that comes from Isaiah. So Paul continues on with that quotation. Now the question we have to ask is, pause for a second. Why didn't they believe the report? So the message went out, the discussion about the Messiah, but Israel didn't believe. Why not? Romans chapter 1 kind of covered this one. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart 
was darkened. And you go all the way to the end of chapter one of Romans, that although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, when Paul is laying that out in Romans one, he's talking about which people? All of them. This is humanity, right? This is the problem of humanity. You know what is good. You know what is right. No one has, well, I better not say no one because you probably find like that weird friend you have, but like no one's ever cheated on their spouse and be like, no, 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 this was perfectly okay and no one will think anything is wrong with it. Like, you knew someone was going to have a problem with it. Probably who? Yeah, probably the spouse. <laughs> I like how you guys always assume it's the husband. You know, we always get such a bad rap. <laughs> But yeah, you knew, like you didn't go into the bank and be like, hey, do me a favor, empty out the safe into the bag. We're going to leave. Like, it's wrong to rob the bank? Who would No one told me these things. It's wrong to lie to people? Why doesn't no one tell me this? You knew. That's why I always ask you. Yeah, really. Exactly. Now, why is that important? Because you know the truth. You know that there's a judgment on your sin. You know who the judge is going to be. You just do a really good job of lying to yourself and convincing yourself that it'll be okay. And while Christian, you may only try to convince yourself it'll be okay this time, you've got to realize that the majority of the world is convincing themselves it's going to be okay forevermore. Not just a little bit, but forever. Now, what happens when you get all of these people together who are convincing themselves that everything will be okay as long as we don't talk about it, and then they try to build a society? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Yeah, other than everything. Now, that's them in general. But specifically, why can Paul apply this to Israel? To them belong the covenants and the prophets and the promises. They knew. They knew. And they did what with it? I mean, if you've never dug into your Old Testament history, when we talk about the sin of Israel in the Old Testament, it's not, it's not like this was this group of plucky people coming out of Egypt. And, you know, if, if only they'd had a lucky break here or there, you know, it might have gone differently for them. Like, the corruption they brought was something else. Like, it's not just like you, you read about the idolatry coming into the temple. So you'll hear about, well, they, they set up the Asherah pole and they, they set up altars to Baal at the temple. And you're going, well, that's bad, but it's worse. When you realize that most of that pagan worship involved sacrifices of some shape, form, or fashion, and you know they don't typically want like your rutabaga. They want something that's alive, that's not necessarily always a critter. And that's if the sacrifice is in that regard. A lot of these uh, pagan cults in the Middle East and in this time period and, and in Canaan were what we would call fertility cults. So to put this politely, they put a brothel in the temple of God. And they were like, what? <laughs> that's not okay? That's not cool? That would, that's okay, that was a thumbs down. Our bad. No, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. They knew and they swung way to the other end of things and were like, no, 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 no. Now, how do you get there? How do you get to the point where you are willing to bring every, not some, every level of human sin and iniquity into the temple of God? What level of lying, convincing, and searing of conscience do you have to accomplish? Now, you're shocked when God looks down at those people and goes, I think it's time to judge somebody. <laughs> When we talk about the patience of God, you realize that he tolerated the nation of Judah for like 140 years after he judged Israel, and he tolerated Judah in total after the split from Israel for almost 400 years. It's a lot of patience. It's a long-suffering God and a patient God who is at work. So, Lord, who has believed our report? Well, the answer was nobody because they've lied to themselves. So, verse 17. So, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, be honest for a second. Doesn't that seem like theological whiplash for a second there? Like, we went out. We proclaimed, and remember what Isaiah 52 is talking about proclaiming, talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, the one from God who will be pierced for their transgressions, who will redeem a nation, who will be honored of God and bring those people into a good kingdom. That's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. So we have proclaimed this great thing, but they didn't believe us. So the next question should be what? Well, now what do we do? 
Well, you proclaim Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you go back to where we started. You have to go out. You have to proclaim. You have to preach. But you just told me they're not actually listening. Yes, I know. That's the only hope you have. Why is it the only hope you have? Because chapter 9 still exists and chapter 10, the first half, still exists. And who runs and rules this place? God. What's the means by which he has set out for salvation? the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. There's not another hope. There's not another way in. So you go all the way back to Romans 1 again. Before went up, before Paul goes on that long diatribe about the sin of humanity, what does he tell you? Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You can see this in the... Um, in the Acts of the Apostles, when Peter is arrested for preaching Christ and he's brought before the council, what does he tell them? Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is where that human responsibility and that sovereignty of God smack head first into each other. So you go out and you proclaim Christ, and the world just kind of looks at you and does that whole, like, it's like, you ever had an argument with Jehovah's Witnesses? And they give you their whole spiel about what they're going to do, and then you try to argue with them about something, and they just kind of blink at you three times and then do the whole spiel again like you didn't even say anything? You're like, oh, I'm not actually talking to a person. I'm just talking to someone who's got talking points, and it's time to do what then? Close the door and not answer the fool according to their folly and move on with life. So you've done that. You've proclaimed Christ and they've just gone, well, that's great. You have faith. I don't. Yeah, what I said. Okay. But what changes the heart and mind? The work of the spirit. What means does he use to accomplish that? The proclamation of Christ in him crucified. There's not another weapon. And this is the lie that the world gets the church to believe. Is they've go, They look at us and go, well, you know. You went out with that boring, stale gospel, and the people just kind of looked at you, and nobody believed it anymore. You know what you need to do? You need to jazz it up a little bit, like spirit fingers. Yay! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> See, we can be stodgy and fun at the same time, right? <laughs> you need to jazz up the message. You need to do this, and we'll have an awesome light show and a fog machine. What was that, by the way? Why is it that every church built between like 1995 and 2005 has the, has the laser show and the fog machine? What, what is so special about a fog machine? See, I, I had one once when I was a youth pastor, and they would never let me use it because kids had asthma. So, <laughs> like, it wasn't allowed. It was Halloween. I'm like, we're going to set up the fog machine. And it'll be and like, no, we have kids with respiratory problems. Wah, wah, wah. So I could set it up like three hours beforehand and put like a little bit of the smoke in the room, and then I'd have to like clear it out. So it was just like maybe a little bit at the windows. <laughs> I was sad. <laughs> they gave me the toy, and then I wasn't allowed to play with it. <laughs> but why do we do that? Well, because if we do, like, 80s songs, and we have a fog machine, and we do a laser show, and I wear the right skinny jeans, then I will be just like everybody else, and you'll listen to me. Cameron's imagining me in skinny jeans. That's a, that's a scary thought, right? See, see, always remember, I don't wear skinny jeans. They just don't look always right, because not because the jeans are skinny, but because I am not. <laughs> so, relaxed fit for the win. <laughs> 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 you laugh. I pay extra for that. <laughs> now, now I'm self-conscious about it. <laughs> but why do we do that? Because if we look enough like the world and we sound enough like the world, then we'll give you just enough of the Christian message and you might believe something. Is, is, is that how God operates? No. God says what? You proclaim Christ and him crucified. And then who changes the heart and the mind? God does. But, but, but they didn't believe our message. Well, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you just keep going out. And by the way, of isn't always necessarily the perfect translation. So it's not like, well, if you didn't say the exact words of Jesus, you got to find, no, about Christ, concerning Christ. That's what the words of Christ mean. So the message of Christ, that's what Paul is talking about here. Proclaiming the gospel, who Jesus is, what that means for you, and how those two things go together. You proclaim that God, because he is sovereign and ruling and reigning, changes hearts and minds, and you go on with your life. Now, that also means sometimes you're going to proclaim that, and guess what they're going to do? Instead of knocking three times on the ceiling, they're going to blink three times at you and not believe. And now you'll have that song stuck in your head. You're welcome. And if you don't know that song, you're a better person anyway. They're going to continue on that way, and you do what? Okay. We'll try again tomorrow. We'll try again another time. But you have to continually rest where? On the cornerstone, on the foundation that is Christ. To go out into the world. What's the message of scripture? You get one word answer. What is it? 
Jesus. At the end of the day, everything in your Bible is supposed to be pointing to Christ, his redemption, what he is doing for his people. This is the cornerstone of your Bible. Now, what's your spiritual weapon, armor of God, people? The sword, which is the word of God. So as you proclaim what the word of God is, you're supposed to be proclaiming the end goal of that word, which is Christ. This is the world. This is the what you, this is the weapon. If I can get my W words, this is the weapon you bring out into the world to wield. There you go. You try to keep all of that straight in your brain. <sighs> what brain cells? Anything else is you surrendering what is the actual foundation of Christ and going out with something else, which means you're surrendering this. You're, you're giving up on faith coming from hearing because you're not actually proclaiming anything that'll change minds. You're just resting on, well, I preached something and they didn't believe. Woe be upon them. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You actually have to rest in the correct place, which by the way is why you actually have the hope and the promise given in the proclamation. So you guys know the Great Commission, I'm sure, but you do remember the actual important part of it, right? So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, which by the way, I know I'm just like I'm contractually obligated to remind you every time we read in the Bible that when you go up to Jerusalem, it's because Jerusalem is on a mountain, like contractually obligated as a pastor. Every time you read the Great Commission, I'm contractually obligated to remind you that what's the, uh, what's the action verb there? What's the imperative? It's not go. Go is an infinitive. <laughs> it's technically as you go or as you are going. So go and make disciples. Go and disciple people. So it's not so much, the reason I point that out is because we make a big deal, oh, the, the Great Commission, that's for those missionaries on the boats going off to, you know, to India or whatever. No, no, it's everything. It's where you live. It's where you have influence. It's the people you talk to. You make disciples, starting again with who? Part of your disciple making is making sure that you're actually interacting with the world in a Christian manner. So this goes back to the evaluation we talked about last week, that as you're encountering the things of this world, how am I honoring God? How am I proclaiming Christ in this situation? Which is, again, why we all have different life situations. That's why you got sick and the neighbor didn't. That's why you had a financial windfall and the neighbor didn't, or you had a shortcoming, whatever it may be, so that you would honor God in that situation so that you would proclaim his mercies and excellencies until he comes back. This is the goal. And that's, by the way, why we all have different life situations. We couldn't all be the same person because who would we testify to? The same people. But you have friends and neighbors and family members and people you have influence with that I will never meet and vice versa. I'll never forget I had this um, – I had a deacon. <sighs> there are things in life that make you happy and sad at the same time. This, this recounting this conversation is always one of them. Um, raised in church. Father was a deacon. Family had literally helped build the church we were in like 100 and some odd years ago. Was in his 60s. I've been fighting this battle for – about two years now. And he finally stops me. We're going from a deacon's meeting to a Bible study on a Sunday night. And we're in between the, um, the building where we were having the meeting and the sanctuary for a Bible study was going to be. And he stops me and he goes, so if I understand you correctly. And so anytime somebody says that to somebody in my line of work, there's always, you're either about to be really, really happy or really, really sad. And so you kind of stop and you have that, okay, you want us to carry the gospel message out to the places that we go because we're going to encounter a bunch of people that you're never going to meet. Now, keep in mind, that was like new doctrine for this church. <laughs> and I was just like, yes, can I hug you? And you, it, for those of you that know, if I am offering to hug someone, big, big, big deal, big deal, big deal. Like sandwich board, like that's one of the signs of the apocalypse is me hugging. <laughs> so... I was just like, I, yes, I was like, I was about to cry. And because, but, but I could see the, like, I could see him working it out in real time. He goes, because I know people that you don't know. And I run into people all the time that you're never going to meet. And he goes, and my family has known people, you know, for hundreds of miles around here that you have no idea. You've only been here a couple of years. You have no idea who these people are. We need to be telling them. And I'm like, yes, thank you. Yes. Now, I point that out to you because, again, when we talk about the work of the church and the work of the Christian community, we are capable of lying to ourselves about some of the things that you would go, well, wasn't that obvious when you read your Bible? It might have been. But what are you capable of lying about? And how much are you capable of lying to yourself and for how long? See, as you go, you make disciples. Why? Or how, rather? Baptizing them in the back that baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. How? 
is I am with you even to the end of the age. See, what's the promise there? Who's going to accomplish this? See, it's not like, you know, guys, all right, get the good boots so they don't wear out, you know, get the packs on and we're going to go and we got this. No, you got nothing. But God does have this. So as you go and as you strengthen yourself and as you are being sanctified day by day and as you are discipling friends and family and loved ones, then the power of the gospel is being carried forth and you trust in God to accomplish his things and work these things out as he is building his kingdom and never the other way around. So... Another fun little story. I've told you this one before, but this is, you want to talk about difficulties in Christian life. What I'm talking about here and what I'm trying to lay out, which what I think is what Paul is trying to lay out is faithfulness as fruitfulness. So as you go, as you are living your life, you are doing so faithfully into God and trusting that then he will build the fruit. So years ago, I had an interview with a church, a small little church, sweet folks, good people. They had about 20 people in this church, and they were um, trying to put this put this well. So there was like a town 10 miles away that had about 12,000 people in it. And then if you went like 40 miles in the other direction, you got to a town that had 15,000 people. And then scattered throughout were towns of like 200, 100 here, a bunch of farming communities. So like you start getting into like Iowa and Western Illinois, you know the type of area I'm talking about. Like Leaf River would have been massive for this area. <laughs> like I drive, you go to Byron and the sign says 3,500, that would have been huge. Like I lived in an area where I lived in, um, for a while there, I lived in a town of 400 people, like next to the post office and behind the fire department. <laughs> All volunteer fire department, by the way, with one town cop. <laughs> so that type of community thing. And they're like, well, how are we going to grow the church? I'm like, I'm talking to half the church on your pulpit committee. Like, there's six or eight of you on this committee, and you only have like 21. And I'm like, you may not, because most of the people in this area are either established in church or they've given up on you completely. So what you have to do is make disciples, strengthen your families, proclaim the gospel, and then trust God. Well, what if nothing happens and we don't grow? Then 20 years from now, when we're all gone, we'll lock the doors and know that we were faithful. Can't imagine why I wasn't hired for anything, can you? (laughs) Now, I did get a phone call from the director of missions who had recommended me to them. And he told me, he told me, thank you. He's like, I've been telling them the same thing for the last two years, but they needed to hear it from somebody that wasn't me. Why though? Because whether you're a church of 2000 people or you're a church of that 20 people, what do you do? The same thing. You trust in God. You make disciples. You be sanctified day by day by the power of the spirit. And you trust in his power going back to Romans 9 because he's the one who's actually sovereign and ruling. So do you have responsibility to do something? Yes. But can you actually accomplish anything in your own power? No. You can accomplish faithfulness. And even that will be because the Holy Spirit's spurring you and moving you forward. Because take the Holy Spirit away, what would you look like? The wrath of God is revealed against is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godliness of men, because that which they know about God, they reject. That's what it would look like. So because of God's accomplishment in you, because of the accomplishment of Christ, you are actually a part of building the kingdom that God will build and secure. Verse 18. So Paul continues, but I say surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So Paul has moved away from Israel a little bit here because the question becomes, well, Israel knew, we've known that, but what about the rest of the world? Well, he quotes Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals his knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the ends of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun. Now, Paul understood this going all the way back to chapter 1, so I'll remind you of this again. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly understood, I'm sorry, been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So in other words, Paul, building on this, knows what? You exist in a world created by God, You know that, which also, by the way, explains why the Psalter holds you responsible. So I've told you before, my uh, my favorite psalm is Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? 
The people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice the nations aren't going, Let us rule and reign because there is no God. They're saying what? We know there's a God, and we hate him. And we will rule, and we will reign, and we will be like the Most High. Because you never heard that line before. (laughs) Ye be like God. Now, Israel as the nation was supposed to evangelize that problem. They were supposed to look at the natural revelation that rejected God and say, wait, 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 you're rejecting maybe just because you don't know enough. We will give you the answer bug in the jar about the boy who has put us here. We will tell you what has gone on, who he is, and what that requires. That's what Romans 3 was on about. What advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, God is not like your parents. He didn't just speak because he liked the sound of his own voice. Just making sure to let that settle for you parents now, because sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? No, God entrusted you with oracles so that you would do what? Proclaim them. That was Israel. That's why Paul tells you in Romans 9, I wish that I could myself be accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, which are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. So, Israel was placed, given these things so that they would proclaim. Israel, however, looked at the world around them and said what? Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, we're we're God's people and you're not. How'd that work out? Yeah, because now stop for a second. The reason why this becomes so important, the minute you start looking at the world and going, we're God's people and you're not God's people. So we're going to sit over here and you sit over there and and we we won't play with you anymore. (laughs) Um, What are you worshiping? What are you celebrating? Who is your God? Who's the good one in this scenario? This is the pride of life. This is what it looks like to go, oh yeah, we're the Christian ones. We're the saved people and you people. I've warned you about this before. You have to be very careful. Look, should you look at the sinful world around you and go, these people are doing these things? Yes, but there's a big difference between looking out at the world and recognizing what people are doing and looking out at the world and going, you people. This is one of those lessons from history, and since we don't study history anymore, because, look, I know I have a history degree. I get it. All the rest of you sat in history class and said the same thing. It's boring. I apologize on behalf of all the history teachers who made it boring. I'm sorry. (laughs) But we all looked at it, and I say that, look, I had some boring ones. It's boring, and I don't care, and I get why you don't care. But part of the lesson of history is recognizing humanity's ability to look at other people and go, those people over there, what we call othering. Every army in human history has done this. So if you don't know, go find anybody in your life that you know that has any military experience. If they were ever serving during anything resembling any type of wartime, go ask them what derogatory terms they had for the other side. There's a list. I mean, we did this in World War I, we did this in World War II, we did this in this, we did this in the Civil War. We were in the same country and we're like, those dirty rebels. <laughs> and those were the nice ones. But we do this, we did this with the Gulf War, we do, we do this everywhere. And by the way, they do too. So if you, you, if you find honest Japanese soldiers, not that there's many left from World War II, or you can find honest Vietnamese uh, veterans from Vietnam, though they had terms for us too, because it's the first, in order to hate you enough to want to kill you, regardless of what I think about you, what do I have to do? I have to get my opinion of you down to what? This is a natural human reaction. It's what armies have done since, well, since there have been armies. So the danger Christian, when you look at the world and you start to other them as those dirty, rotten, sinful people, is they become less. And they become less by you becoming what? More. This is welcome to bitterness. Welcome to the hatred. Welcome to the difficulties of the world. It's a hard place to live, and I get that. But you have to guard your heart. And you have to guard it to make sure that you actually look out at the world and remember that that's not the enemy, that sin and Satan are the enemy, and that the weapons against that warfare is the message of Christ and him crucified. And I know they're not going to like it. I know they're not going to hear it. But... I have to be secure in my salvation in God and I have to be secure in my sanctification that I continue to be discipled and continue to proclaim his mercies because if I don't, I leave them here. 
I leave them not knowing because again, what is my responsibility? What is my mission in this world? It is to honor God and to love neighbor because that's the summation of all the law. And recognizing that the people I know and the people that I care about are going astray and then leaving them to that is not loving. And that's the difficult thing because again, my flesh wants what? I'm secure, you're not. You know what we're gonna do? I'm gonna leave me right here. I'm gonna leave you right there and then everything will be fine. But that's not where the gospel leaves us and that's not where the message of service to God actually leaves us. If you'd like an example from history, now you can go back to your Old Testament and see Israel because this is what they did. They sat in their nation. They looked at the nations around them and were like, those evil Gentiles, those people out there who do not have the temple, who do not have the kingdom, who do not have the priesthood, who do not have the sacrifices, who do not have the promises, those people out there are doomed. And it creates a prideful nation that, not, that doesn't just reject the world around them, but by rejecting the world around them and the mission that God has given them, given them who are they actually rejecting? the God who gave the mission. And this is again why I remind you, you can't logic them. You can't argue them. You can't emote them and you cannot convince them into the kingdom. You have to preach Christ and him crucified. First Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's the anchor. That's the hope. Verse 19. Move from the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Okay. We've kind of covered that, right? Did Israel know? Yes, they should have. Who made sure they knew? God, with his revelation to Moses. So first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. Now, that's fascinating to me. So you, you see the all caps, right? Bible trivia. Which book did Moses write that in? Take a guess. What you got? It is Deuteronomy. It is Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is awesome because the little heading in your Bible will tell you that Deuteronomy 32 going into chapter 33 is a song of Moses. Now, the reason I say it's fascinating is chapter 31 of Deuteronomy tells you that God gave Moses this song to teach it to the Israelites. Why? Because they needed music. Well, maybe they did, but you are to teach them this song so that when they go astray and forget the Lord their God, they will sing this and remember and return. Now, the reason why I say that's fascinating is part of that promise is what? I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. I mean, gee, where might you find something like that fulfilled, Paul? <laughs> like at Pentecost and the works of the gospel extending to the nations where every tribe and tongue and nation is around the throne. In other words, the gospel being fulfilled. This is why you see Paul's ministry look like what it looks like in the book of Acts. So he did Acts on Wednesday's Bible study a couple of months ago. Hang on. And you see this in Paul's ministry. So he goes into a town. Where's his first stop? Enters the town. Where does he go first? He goes, he goes to the synagogue because who's there? The Jews who know what, who have Moses and the prophets. If anybody should get it, it should be them. Now, almost universally, what happens when Paul goes to the synagogue? They reject him, try to kill him. Sometimes they almost succeed. And maybe one or two would come out. And it gets to the point that by the time you get to the book of Acts, by the time you get to about like chapter 18, 19, Paul says what to them? Fine, forget you. I'm going to the Gentiles. <laughs> they listen. They come to me. They are not pride-filled. They don't know and yet they hunger for the salvation of God. Now, who's doing that? God is, according to chapter 9. Why? So that what he has promised will be fulfilled, so that you can see as Israel goes astray that God's message will still go out, God's kingdom will still be built, that which was not a people will be a people, so that those who have seen the promises will know who God is, that he is still fulfilling. Those who have received the blessings 
or who should have received the blessings will see that they are still in effect. They have not been forsaken so that they will hopefully do what? What's the point of the song for Deuteronomy 32 and 33? So when Israel turns away and goes astray, didn't mean for that to rhyme, sorry. They will sing this. They will find their way. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'll stop. I'll stop. They will actually repent and return to God. That's the hope. And by the way, the fact that this song exists is why they were, con- they were condemned by prophet and Messiah alike. So you have Jesus quoting from Isaiah when he tells them that, um, oh shoot, my brain stopped. The people near draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me and their reverence of me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrous mar- wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish. The discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. In other words, that which is not wise will be raised up. That which is exalted by people will be torn down, and God would be praised. Verse 20. <laughs> and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Where does he say such a thing? Chapter 65, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call my name. Now, because why? God's work from the very beginning has always been for who? Or is that supposed to be whom there? I don't know. My English people have to yell at me later. For the entirety of his creation, to the ends of the earth. God didn't just put Adam and Eve in the garden and be like, all right, guys, you got a garden. Don't lose it. <laughs> it was to do what from that garden? To go out. By the way, why didn't they have to worry about losing the garden? Why don't they have to worry about losing the garden? I mean, wouldn't that be your concern? Like, we've got this really nice, secure garden. Now you want me to go out into the world and take the garden to the ends of the earth? But, but what happens if something bad happens to the garden while I'm gone? Well, why, why, why is that not going to happen to the garden? Because like I said, this is God's sanctuary. This is the place that he has anchored himself. This is the place that he has sent you out from. This is secure. This is your stronghold. This is the unconquerable city. Now, what was Israel supposed to be? Secure, the stronghold, so that the dominion would extend to the ends of the earth. Christian, why don't you fear? Why is the Holy Spirit given to you? Why is sanctification given to you as a sign of your salvation? So that you will know what as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That his rod and his staff comforts me, that he walks with me, that I have not been forgotten, that I have not been forsaken, that no matter what befalls me, I will be his at the end. That's the hope. That's the reminder that's going on here is that God is being found by who? The nations, because they were doing such a good job of seeking after God. No, Israel was doing such a good job of seeking after God. Yeah, no. In other words, who's going to accomplish this? God, because who's actually sovereign? This was always supposed to be the point. You even see this at the Pentecost sermon that Peter gives. When they heard this, talking about Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. I always love that terminology in your Bible. Wouldn't you love to, like, get in the DeLorean and snatch up Peter and drop him off? and Like, oh, you think your generation was perverse? Take him to a pride parade. (laughs) See, by the way, sin's not worse. You just see more of it. You just, you just see where the line was where society looked at it and went, no, 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 that we will not allow any longer. And sin went, oh, we've crossed that line. We shall rest here and take no more territory. That's what sin does, right? No, sin says what? Gimme, 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 gimme. Because what does your sin say? Gimme, 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 gimme. It's not worse. It's just we see it more, we know more, and because of that, we think it's worse. The human heart has always been deceitful and wicked again. They put a brothel in the temple, and those are the good ones. <laughs> those are the ones being like, they're not that bad. Okay, they, were, they were pretty bad. The salvation of God, though, has, will, and until the kingdom comes again, overcome. As we proclaim Christ 
and his accomplishment. As we remain faithful to the message that changes the hearts and minds of men, God is who is building his kingdom. That's why he's being sought. So verse 21, as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And by the way, Isaiah doesn't stop there. So he says, I've spread out my hands all the day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens, burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and a broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near to me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. See, that's bad. That's also why the accomplishment is what it is. So Hebrews 3, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he was count, he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now pause, Christian. What's the boast of our hope? How good we are? How much we've accomplished? No. Christ in him crucified, who overcomes sin, who by God's grace has redeemed us, who is strengthening us until a final day, and who will never forsake his people. It's a humility. This is why I read Isaiah 66 earlier. Humble and brought down. What James talks about, humble yourselves and God will exalt you at the proper time. How? Well, when the kingdom comes and you celebrate the great work that God has accomplished, you'll rejoice and see that because you did not exalt self, but you served and honored Christ. And as you looked out at the wicked and perverse generation, you exhorted them with many things because you were being sanctified day by day and calling them to the same thing. Why? Because that's the responsibility that we're given, to honor God and serve him in the place that he's, been given, that he's given to us. You might have wanted to pick a better time. You might think Peter's time was better. Peter called them a first generation. I've told you this before. One of my favorite jokes is that reading through, um, yes, I'm weird, was reading through sermons from the 1500s, and the guy complained to his congregation. Um, see, I can never remember if it's Busser or Bullinger. I think it's Bullinger, Heinrich Bullinger. And he tells the congregation, he goes, to the seniors of his congregation, he goes, stop complaining about your grandkids. People have been complaining about their grandkids from the beginning of time. They're not that much worse than you were. <laughs> And I just love that in the 1500s that he's looking at the old people in his church and going, stop complaining about the new generation. The old generation complained about you when you were the new generation. And I often wonder if like, if we could put him down here, if he'd still tell us, stop complaining about the new generation. Because I've realized that I got old one day because I was looking at it. I was like, I was watching a college football game. Going, Can you believe these kids? <gasps> oh no. College kids are now college kids. When did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the gray hair. It's, a certain amount of it goes inward and like affects the brain and, and changes something. I don't know. <laughs> we only see the outside. It actually does something internally. <laughs> we look out at the world and be like, we want a better one. There wasn't a better one. It's been broken. It's been messed up. It's been wicked and perverse. So what do you do? You recognize that God rules and reigns, that he is the one who changes hearts and minds. And you be sanctified day by day by the power of the Spirit, proclaiming his mercies, so that when people do actually look at you and go, well, why are you calm? Why are you okay? How do you overcome? See, now I get to tell you about my God. Now I get to tell you about the mercies and what he has strengthened me through and how, not because of who I am, but because of who he is and because of what he has accomplished. Let's pray.